Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nostalgic Mystery Radio. I'm your host, Stevie Kay, and it's my honor to bring you the radio shows of yesteryear. For this episode, I bring you The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, episode titled The Yellow Face, where Grant Moreau thinks his wife is being blackmailed. He's distraught and hires Sherlock Holmes to find out the details. So sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy this Nostalgic Mystery Radio. Thank you for listening. I have kept this secret from my husband for three years now. Three years that seem to me a lifetime, and which I can bear no longer. You must believe me when I say I have struggled to put the past and all it means to me out of my life. But I find my struggle is all in vain, and I now have an overpowering desire to be once again with the one I love so dearly, where we can be together once more, and hopefully put an end to this heartache which causes such pain and makes of my life a sham. Alice? Yes, Mum? There's a letter I would like you to post. The Yellow Face by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Dramatised for radio by Jerry Jones. With Clive Merrison as Sherlock Holmes and Michael Williams as Dr John Watson. And featuring Joan Matheson as Mrs Hudson, Mark Straker as Grant Monroe and Helena Breck as Effie Monroe. The Yellow Face. <coughs> more whiskey, Holmes? Uh, no, thank you, Watson. Uh, kind of you, but I've drunk more than enough. Excuse my asking, but um, anything wrong? I'm not way wrong. Well, I hesitate to say, but you look unwell, Holmes. Do I indeed? Not unwell, are you? No, Watson, I am not unwell. At least not what is normally meant by the term. Then what... uh... Bored is what I am, my dear fellow. When I'm between cases, I feel bored. Bored to my very bones. Bored. Then perhaps another drink would help. Oh, very well. If only to halt your needless concern. Nothing like a drink when you're down in the dumps. Except for cocaine, Watson... That is the magic potion that gives me glimpses of paradise. Mm, And brings you down to earth with a bump. Like love, I'm told. Yeah. Strange business, love. Nothing lasts, they say. They're right, Watson. Nothing is forever. Though boredom, I must say, gives a remarkably good impression of it. Holmes, I have a suggestion to make. help you, sir? I wish to speak to Mr. Sherlock Holmes. I'm afraid Mr. Holmes is not in at the moment, sir. Last. But he will be returning, sir. Do you know how long he will be? I'm afraid not, sir. Mr. Holmes's schedule is somewhat erratic at the moment. May I wait for him in his room? Certainly, sir. Please come in. I should have known better than allow you to coax me into a stroll in the park, Watson. Yeah. Let us sit down for a moment. Mm. Just look about you, Holmes. 
I must admit those trees are quite beautiful. Only if you will admit that relentless beauty can be devastatingly dull. Dull? This? You hardly know the meaning of the word, do you? Oh, I envy you, my dear fellow. I'm bored and you walk constantly in wonder. Oh, I must say, Holmes, I shall certainly be glad when a new case comes your way. Very glad indeed. And so will I. Oh, so will I. So it was the same. If you're not solving some mystery or other, you don't seem to be alive. Because I'm not. Cases are my reason, my only real reason for living. If you will not promise to love forever, said the man to his lady love, what is the point of forever? <sighs> I still think the view beautiful from here. Yes. What's it like at midnight? Oh, cheer up, old friend. Something will happen. Of course. It always does. Here we are, sir. Please take a seat. Thank you. Is it all right if I smoke my pipe? I'm sure that is perfectly acceptable, sir. As you can see, Mr. Holmes is quite something of a pipe smoker himself. Now, you just sit down and relax, sir. I'm sure he'll not be too long. Relax. So easy to say. How can I relax? I must advise you, Watson, and I do it with all sincerity. Should huh? you ever in the future suggest a visit to the zoological gardens, I shall screech louder than any known monkey. But many of the animals are interesting, you have to admit. Let them from their cages, then they would be interesting. Well, yes. And now but... I suggest we release ourselves. Another walk? Yes. Home. Oh, sir, you're leaving. I certainly am. It seems he's never going to come. I'm sure you'll only need to wait a little longer, sir. Then I'll wait in the open air. I feel half choked. I really am sorry, sir, but as I said, Mr Holmes's activities are thrown. Yes, yes, I know, but I'm stifled. I must get some air. As you wish, sir. I'm sure Mr Holmes will be sorry to have missed you. Yes. Well, I'll be back before long. I'll let him know when he returns, sir. Now, to be frank with you, Watson, and I'm fully aware that you've been doing everything with the best of intentions, I find walking an act of pleasure completely without interest. Mm -hmm. uh, I appreciate your concern for my welfare, but moving the muscles without purpose is quite meaningless. So it would be no use my suggesting an art gallery? Oh, no, none whatsoever. I intend to go home and do nothing but sit, read, smoke and sleep. Sorry, Holmes. I've been making some rather miserable suggestions, haven't I? No, Watson. It's just that you've been making them to a rather miserable man. Excuse me, Mr. Holmes, hmm? but there was a gentleman earlier wishing to speak to you. So much for afternoon walks, Watson. Uh, has this gentleman gone then, Mrs. Hudson? Yes, sir. Well, didn't you ask him in? Yes, sir, he came in. How long did he wait? Half an hour, sir. Tell me, Mrs. Hudson, do you notice anything particular about him? Well, he was tall, sir, quietly dressed in a dark grey suit and carried a brown wide-awake in his hand. I should put him at somewhere in his thirties. Oh, oh, yeah, oh, so much for his appearance. Now, now for his state of mind, how were your powers of observation on that score, Mrs. Hudson? Oh, he was much agitated and very restless. I could hear him walking and stamping about in your room all the time he was here. Sorry you missed him, Holmes. He did say he would return, Doctor. Oh, thank heavens for that. And quite soon now, I should think. Ah, good, good. Well, all is not lost. Well done, Mrs Hudson. Thank you, Mr Holmes. 
Come, Watson, we'll have a smoke and await our visitor. I say, old chap, you'll make a detective of Mrs. Hudson yet. Ah, yes, indeed. Even if she will only match Lestrade in noticing the obvious. That's <laughs> uh, all very annoying there, Watson. Yes. You're badly in need of a case, and the man's impatience makes this affair appear of some importance. Indeed. Yes, well, well, we shall see. Hello. Uh, hmm? That's not your pipe on the table. Huh. Must have left his behind. Yeah. Nice old briar with a good long stem of what the tobacconists call amber. So it is. Well, well. I wonder how many real amber mouthpieces there are in London. Mm, you know, some people think a fly in it is a good sign. Oh, really? Yes, yes. It's quite a branch of the trade, the putting of sham flies into the sham amber. <laughs> well, he must have been disturbed in his mind to leave a pipe behind which he evidently values highly. How do you know he values it highly? Well, I should put the original cost of the pipe at, uh, oh, seven and sixpence. Now, it has, you see, been twice mended, once in the wooden stem and once in the amber. Each of these men's done, as you observe, with silver bands. Mm. Hmm? Must have cost more than the pipe did originally. Uh, the man must value the pipe highly when he prefers to patch it up rather than buy a new one for the same money. Well, well, I say. Then he's bitten through his amber. It takes a muscular, energetic fellow and one with a good set of teeth to do that. Now, if I'm not mistaken, I hear him upon the stair. So we shall have something more interesting than the pipe to study. Mm. Oh, I beg your pardon. I suppose I should have knocked. Yes, of course I should have knocked. The fact is I am a little upset and... I ask you to put my bad manners down to that. I quite understand. Uh, may I introduce my colleague and confidant, Dr. Watson? Oh, good day. Uh, now, I suggest you put your hat on the table. Yes, and take that chair. Oh, thank you. <sighs> thank you. I can see that you've not slept for a night or two. Yeah, that tries a man's patience more than work and even more than pleasure. Yes, I... Um, I... May I ask how I can help you? I want your advice, sir. I don't know what to do, and my whole life seems to have gone to pieces. You wish to employ me as a consulting detective? Not that only. I want your opinion as a judicious man, a man of the world. I want to know what I ought to do next. It's a very delicate thing. One does not like to speak of one's domestic affairs to strangers. It seems dreadful to discuss the conduct of one's wife with two men whom I have never met before. Ah. Your wife. We are, as you will gather, the soul of discretion. Your reputation leads me to know that. I've got to the end of my tether and I must have advice. My dear Mr. Grant Munro. What? You know my name? If you wish to preserve your incognito, I suggest that you cease to write your name upon the lining of your hat or else oh. you turn the crown towards the person whom you're addressing. However, I was about to say that my friend and I have listened to many strange cases in this room and that we've had the good fortune to bring peace of mind to many troubled souls. I trust we may do as much for you. Oh, I trust you may. Might I beg you, as time may prove to be of importance, to furnish me with the facts of your case without further delay? The facts are these, Mr. Holmes. I am a married man, and have been so for three years. During that time, my wife and I have loved each other as fondly and lived as happily as any two that were ever joined. But now, since last Monday, there has suddenly sprung up a barrier between us. And I find that there is something in her life and in her thoughts of which I know as little as if she were the woman who brushes by me in the street. Mm. We are estranged, 
And I want to know why. And what is your reason for this certainty? There is one thing I want to impress upon you before I go any further, Mr Holmes. Yes, which is? Effie loves me. Of this you are quite sure. Oh, don't let there be any mistake about that, Doctor. She loves me with her whole heart and soul, and never more so than now. I don't want to argue about that. A man can tell easily enough when a woman loves him. Indeed he can. But there is this secret between us. And we can never be the same until it is clear. Kindly let me have the facts, Mr Monroe. Oh, yes, I, I'm sorry. Hmm. I'll tell you what I know of Effie's history. She was a widow when I first met her, though she was only 25. Her name then was Mrs Hebron. She had gone out to America when she was young and had lived in the town of Atlanta, where she married this Hebron, who was a lawyer with a good practice. They had one child. But the yellow fever broke out badly in the place, and both husband and child died of it. I have seen the death certificate. They sickened her of America, and she came back to live with a maiden aunt at Pinner, in Middlesex. Where you met her? Yes. She had only been there six months. We fell in love and were married in a few weeks afterwards. May I inquire as to your financial situation? Her husband had left her well provided for, and she had a capital of about £4,500, which had been so well invested by him that it returned an average of 7%. And your own circumstances? I am a hop merchant myself, and as I have an income of seven or 800 we found ourselves comfortably off and took a nice £8-a-year villa at Norbury. Ah, charming area, Norbury. Yes, and our little place was very countrified, considering that it is so close to town. There is an inn, two houses a little above us, and a single cottage at the other side of the field which faces us. And except those, there are no other houses until you get halfway to the station. My business takes me into town at certain seasons, but in summer I have less to do, and then, in our country house... My wife and I have been as happy as could be wished. And now perhaps... Yes, if you would. <clears throat> My colleague is a little anxious for you to bring your story to the present. Oh, d there's one thing I ought to tell you before I go further. Which is? When we married... My wife made over all her property to me, rather against my will, for I saw how awkward it would be if my business affairs went wrong. But she insisted? She would have it no other way, and it was done. Well, about six weeks ago, she came to me and said... Jack, when you took my money, you said that if ever I wanted any, I was to ask you for it. Certainly. It's all your own. What do you require? Five pounds? Ten? Twenty? No, Jack... I want a hundred pounds. <laughs> what on earth for? Now then, Jack, you said you were only my banker. Yes, that's right. Well, bankers do not ask questions. Well, if you really mean it, yes. Of course you can have the money. Oh, yes, I, I really mean it. And you won't tell me why you need it? Someday, perhaps. Someday. We don't usually have secrets between us. I am sorry. I wish it could be otherwise. Very well. I'll write you a cheque. One hundred pounds it shall be. That may have nothing to do with what came afterwards, but I thought it only right to mention it. Uh, quite so. Details are of the essence. Pray continue. Well, I told you just now that there is a cottage not far from our house. There is just a field between us, but to reach it you have to go along the road and then turn down a lane. Just beyond it is a nice little grove of Scotch firs, and I used to be very fond of strolling down there, for trees are always neighbourly kinds of things. Yes, they give me much pleasure, even in the London parks. All right, Watson, point taken. Well, uh, the cottage had been standing empty this eight months, and it was a pity, for it is a pretty two-storied place. Well, last Monday evening, 
I was taking a stroll down that way when I met an empty van coming up the lane and saw a pile of carpets and things lying about on the grass plot beside the porch. It was clear that the cottage had at last been let. I walked past it and then, stopping, as an idle man might, I ran my eye over it and wondered what sort of folk they were who come to live so near us. And as I looked... I suddenly became aware that a face was watching me from one of the upper windows. This clearly distressed you. Well, yes, dreadfully. I don't know what there was about it, Mr. Holmes, but it seemed to send a chill right down my back. I was some little way off so that I could not make out the features, but there was something unnatural and inhuman about the face. Well, that was the impression I had, and I moved quickly forwards to get a nearer view of the person who was watching me. But as I did so, the face suddenly disappeared, so suddenly that it seemed to have been plucked away into the darkness of the room. I stood for five minutes thinking the business over and trying to analyse my impression. Was the face of a man or a woman? I could not tell, but the colour was what impressed me most. The colour? It was of a livid, dead yellow, and with something set and rigid about it. Jaundice, perhaps? I think not. It was shockingly unnatural, and so disturbed was I that I determined to see a little more of the new inmates of the cottage. What may you be wanting? Um... I am your neighbour. My wife and I live in that house opposite. Well, what do you want with us? I see that you have only just moved in, so I thought that if I could be of any help to you in any right, way... Right, aye. We'll just ask you when we want you. Good night. Annoyed at the churlish rebuff, I turned my back and walked home. All evening, though I tried to think of other things, my mind would still turn to the apparition at the window and the rudeness of the woman. Mm, did you say nothing of this to your wife? No. She is nervous and highly strung, and I had no wish that she should share the unpleasant impression which had been produced upon myself. A wise decision. I remarked to her, however, before I fell asleep, that the cottage was now occupied. She made no reply. I am an extremely sound sleeper, but I slept much more lightly than usual. Half in my dreams, I was dimly conscious that something was going on in the room and gradually became aware that my wife had dressed herself and was slipping on her mantle and her bonnet. She was deadly pale and breathing fast, glancing furtively towards the bed to see if she disturbed me. Then, thinking that I was still asleep, she slipped from the room and an instant later I heard a sharp creaking which could only have come from the hinges of the front door. I sat up in bed, then took my watch from under the pillow. It was three in the morning. Good Lord. What on earth could my wife be doing out on the country road at that hour? Mm. To what conclusion did you come? I had sat for about twenty minutes turning the thing over in my mind, trying to find some possible explanation. The more I thought, the more inexplicable did it appear. I was still puzzling it over when I heard the door gently close again and her footsteps coming up the stairs. She gave a violent start and a kind of gasping cry when she saw that I was awake. And that cry and start troubled me more than all the rest, for there was something indescribably guilty about them. <gasps> Where in the world have you been, Effie? Jack, you're awake. I, I thought nothing in the world would awake you. Answer my question. Where have you been? You used to say you slept the sleep. Where of the have day. you been? Oh, please, Jack. I. I can understand how surprised you must be. Answer the question. I... I've never done anything like this before. It... It's just... Well, you see... Yes? Well, I... I felt as though I was choking. I had a desperate need for a, a breath of fresh air. If I had not gone outside, I, I really would have fainted. 
I, I stood at the door for a few minutes. I'm quite myself again. You have no need for concern. All the time she was telling me this story, she never once looked in my direction, and her voice was quite unlike her usual tones. It was evident to me that what she was saying was false. Did you pursue her on the point? No. I turned my face to the wall, sick at heart. My mind filled with a thousand venomous doubts and suspicions. All the rest of the night I tossed and tumbled, framing theory after theory, each more unlikely than the last. And when morning came? My wife seemed as upset as myself, and I could see from her questioning glances that she knew I disbelieved her statement and that she was at her wit's end. Is there something wrong with your breakfast, dear? No, nothing wrong. But you're hardly... I'm not hungry. Would you like more toast? I have to go to the city this morning. But you haven't... Time I was going. Jack? Yes? Nothing. It was nothing. I see. However, Mr. Holmes, I was too disturbed in my mind to think of business matters. So I was back in Norbury by one o'clock. It happened that my way home took me past the cottage, and I stopped for a moment to look at the windows, wondering if by chance I might once again see the face I had seen the day before. To my surprise, the door of the cottage suddenly opened. It was nothing, however, to my surprise on seeing who it was that emerged. <gasps> Jack, I, I'd just been to see if I could be of any assistance to our new neighbours. Why do you look at me that way? So this is where you went on leaving your bed. What do you mean? I, I've never been here before. <laughs> How can you stand there telling me what you know to be false? Jack... Your voice, your face, everything about you changes as you speak. Jack, don't be angry with me. When have I ever had a secret from you? Well, I'm going into the cottage. I'm going to get to the bottom of this. No. Oh, no, Jack, for God's sake. Go of my arm. I beg you not to do this. I swear that I will tell you everything one day. Too late. Jack, nothing but misery can come if you enter that cottage. I'm going in. No, Jack. Trust me. In God's name, trust me. Trust me only this once, and I swear you will never have cause to regret it. Our whole lives are at stake in this. If you come home with me now, all will be well. If you enter that cottage, all is over between us. You are asking a great deal of me, Effie. I'm asking for the only thing I can ask for. Your trust. Very well. I will trust you on one condition, and one condition only. That this mystery comes to an end from this very moment. You are at liberty to keep your secret, but you must promise me there shall be no more nightly visits, no more behaviour which is kept from me. Oh, Jack, I will do anything you ask, anything. I, I promise, believe me, I promise. Very well. Let us say no more. Now let's go back to the house, my dear. Come on, let us go back. Let us get away from here. As we made our way from the cottage, I looked back, and there in the upper window was that yellow, livid face watching us. I wondered what in God's name could be the connection between that creature and my wife, or how could the woman whom I had seen the day before be connected with her. So, what did you do? Nothing, at first. For two days afterwards, I stayed at home, and my wife appeared to be keeping her promise not to go to the cottage. She seemed to be loyal to our agreement, and as far as I knew, never left the house. You said you did nothing at first, Mr Munro. Yes. 
On the third day, something happened which gave me ample evidence that her promise was far from being kept. And what evidence was this? I had gone into town that day, but returned by an earlier train than usual. I entered the house and... Effie! Effie, I'm back! Effie? Oh, oh, sir. So I didn't expect you. No, I caught an earlier train. I see. Excuse me, sir, I have things to do. Uh, One moment. Sir? Where is your mistress? She, um... I think she's gone for a walk, sir. A walk? Yes, sir. You think so? Excuse me, sir, I really must get on with my work now. Is something wrong? Wrong, sir. No, no, sir. You seem somewhat upset. Upset, sir? No, sir, it's just... You have things to do, I quite understand. Very well, uh, off you go. Thank you, sir. My mind was instantly filled with suspicion. I rushed upstairs to make sure she was not in the house. As I did so, I happened to glance out of one of the upper windows and saw the very maid with whom I had just been speaking running across the field in the direction of the cottage. Then, of course, I saw exactly what it all meant. My wife had gone over there and had asked the servant to call her if I should return. Tingling with anger, I rushed down and strode across, determined to end the matter once and forever. Thus you encountered your wife and the maid. I saw them hurrying back together along the lane, but I did not stop to speak with them. Your state of mind was focused on the cottage. On nothing else, for in there lay the secret which was casting a shadow over my life, and I vowed that, come what might, it should be a secret no longer. I did not even knock when I reached it, but turned the handle and rushed into the passage. It was all still and quiet on the ground floor. A kettle was singing on the fire, and a large black cat lay coiled up in a basket. But there was no sign of the woman whom I had seen before. There was no one at all in the whole house. The furniture and pictures were of the most common and vulgar description, save in the one chamber at the window of which I had seen the strange face. That was comfortable and elegant. And all my suspicions rose into a fierce, bitter blaze when I saw that on the mantelpiece stood a full-length photograph of my wife, which had been taken at my request only three months ago. I left the place feeling a weight at my heart, such as I have never felt before. When I arrived home, my wife came out into the hall, but I was too hurt and angry to speak to her and went into my study. She followed me, however, before I could shut the door. I'm sorry. I think it better if you left. You've been to the cottage, have you not? I am sorry. Are you indeed? Well, your sorrow solves nothing. I'm sorry that I broke my promise to you. Oh, for God's sake, Effie, leave me alone. But if you knew all the circumstances, I'm sure you would forgive me. I think things have passed the point of forgiveness, don't you? But if only you knew that... Then you'd better tell me, hadn't you? I cannot. I cannot. Then all I say to you is that, until you tell me who it is who has been living in that cottage, and who it is to whom you gave that photograph, there can be no confidences between us. Now I suggest you leave me in peace. Leave me in peace, Effie. Please. That was yesterday, Mr. Holmes. I have not seen her since, nor do I know any more of this strange business. All I know now is that my marriage, a marriage I treasured and thought secure, is now no more than a sham. I place myself unreservedly in your hands. Hmm. Uh, so, you say it was unclear if the face at the window was a man or a woman. 
It was always at a distance. Mm. You do appear, however, to have been much affected by its appearance, the unusual colour, the strange rigidity, and so forth. And so would anyone. Mm. Tell me, how long is it since your wife asked you for the £100? Nearly two months. Yes, and have you ever seen a photograph of her first husband? No. There was a great fire in Atlanta shortly after his death, and all her papers were destroyed. And yet she has a certificate of death. You say you saw it. Oh, yes. Uh, she got a duplicate after the fire. Mm. Have you ever met anyone who knew her in America? No. Did she ever talk of revisiting the place? No. Or get letters from it? No. Yeah, thank you. Let me advise you, then. Return to Norbury and examine the windows of the cottage again. If you have reason to believe it inhabited, do not force your way in, but send a wire to my friend and me, and we'll be there within an hour of receiving it. And if it's empty? In that case, I shall come out tomorrow and talk it over with you. For now, goodbye. Above all, do not fret until you know that you really have cause. Thank you. Uh, Thank you both. I will be in touch with you. Before you go, Mr Munro... Your pipe. (laughs) My pipe? So that's where I left it. Thank you. Goodbye, gentlemen. Goodbye, Mr. Munro. <laughs> well, well, well. <laughs> and what do you think, Watson? I think a glass of something is called for. A glass, my dear fellow, a glass of something will be excellent. Excellent. Oh, I must say, Holmes. It's good to see you in such fine spirits again. Well, as you know, there's nothing like an interesting case to set the pulse a-beating. Uh, do you have a theory? Mm, provisionally, yes. However, I shall be very surprised if it turns out not to be the correct one. <laughs> but first, Watson, a little drink, and then, hmm, a fine walk. A, w- a walk, Holmes? Why not? It's a beautiful day, and the exercise will do us good. But I thought you The drink, that. Watson, the drink. Holmes, would you mind if we stopped for a while and rested? Hmm? What's the matter, dear friend? <laughs> Old age beginning to tell? Uh, I think it must be. Uh, 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 very well. Let's sit here. Ah. Oh, delightful spot. <sighs> Thank you, Holmes. Mm, just look at that view, Watson. Look at it. it, it it's quite beautiful. Yes. How could one ever tire of such a vista? I thought you were going to explain your theory to me. Yes, so I shall, so I shall. You must forgive me, old fellow. It's just that I'm, I'm so enjoying this case that I'm reluctant to bring it to an end. Nevertheless, oh, the, the fact... Quite so, quite so, quite so. Well, Watson, it seems to me the facts are these... The person at the cottage is the woman's first husband. How else can we explain her frenzied anxiety that her second husband should not enter? Hmm? As I read it, it goes something like this. This woman marries in America. Her husband contracts some bothersome disease and becomes a leper or an imbecile. Something, anyway, which is regarded as repellent. She leaves him eventually and returns to England. She changes her name and starts, as she thinks, a new life. She meets and marries Mr Monroe. She's been married three years and believes her position to be quite secure, having shown her husband the death certificate of some man whose name she has assumed. Suddenly, however, her first husband discovers her whereabouts, the information having been given to him by some unscrupulous woman who's become attached to him in some way. They write to the wife, threatening to come and expose her past life and her desertion of her invalid former husband, a past of which she could hardly be proud. Mrs. Munro asks her husband for a hundred pounds and endeavours to buy them off. In spite of this, they still arrive, and when Munro informs his wife that there are newcomers in the cottage, she suspects at once who they are. She waits until her present husband is asleep and then rushes to the cottage in an attempt to persuade them to leave her in peace. 
Having no success, she goes again the following morning, and her husband meets her coming out as he told us. She promises never to go there again, but two days later, the desire to get rid of those dreadful neighbours is too strong, and she makes one more attempt, taking with her her photograph, which, no doubt, has been demanded from her to uh, strengthen their blackmail. And while she's talking with them, the maid rushes in to say her master has returned unexpectedly. The wife, knowing that her husband will come straight to the cottage, hurries the occupants out of the back door, probably into the grove of uh, Scotch firs he mentioned. In this way, he finds the place deserted. Yes, I shall be very surprised, though, if it still is when we go this evening, as undoubtedly we shall. Well, what do you think of my theory, Watson? Watson? Wake up, Watson. The cottage is still rented. Has seen face again at window. We'll meet the seven o'clock train and we'll take no steps until you arrive. The weather being what it is, I thought it best to meet you with the trap. Most thoughtful. Mm. I saw lights in the cottage as I came down. We'll settle this once and for all. And what is your plan? I'm going to force my way in and see for myself who is in the house. I wish you both there as witnesses. Legally, we're putting ourselves in the wrong, of course. But in this case, I think it's worth it. That's open to question. There are the lights of my house, and over there is the cottage. You see it? Ah, the cottage. At last, Watson, my friend. The game is truly afoot. <sighs> wish I'd brought my brolly. Oh, look! Look there in the upper window! It's the creature! Now you've seen for yourselves! You've seen for yourselves! I'm not the only one at last! Good heavens! What on earth is it? I can't imagine! Oh, it's gone! For God's sake, Jack, go away from this place! Betty, so you are here, as I thought! Leave here, all of you! Leave here! Out of our way! I beg you! You begged before! I'll not be made a fool of again! Please, Jack, think better of it for both our sakes! Trust me once more and you will never regret it! Never! I've trusted you too long! Let go of me! My friends and I are going to settle this matter! Let go of me! Right, we're in. And upstairs, I think, don't you? Yes, come on, follow me! Jack! No! What? What in heaven's name? It's a little girl, Holmes. I can see that perfectly well, Watson. But her face. Look at her face. Yes, as you said, a vivid tint about it and quite expressionless, quite expressionless. I don't understand. What is this? Well, let us see what we shall see. Now, come here, little girl. That's quite all right. No need to be afraid. That's it. That's it. There now. Well, as you can see now, Mr. Monroe, it's not a face at all. But a mask. A mask? Why is she wearing a... And now, as you will also see, I remove it. <laughs> God! What is happening here? I can't believe my eyes. So now you know, Jack. I just can't believe it. But now you know. No? 
I know nothing. But you force me to tell you against my better judgment. Perhaps, Mrs. Monroe, you'd prefer us to go downstairs. No. The time is now. The place is of no importance. Then, for God's sake, tell your story. Very well, Jack. I shall tell my story. I shall tell of my first husband who died in Atlanta. And of my child who survived. Your child survived? But you said I shall tell of this locket I wear. A locket you did not know opens. There. That, my dear, is my first husband. John Hebron of Atlanta. But he's... The noblest man who ever walked the earth. I cut myself off from my race in order to wed him. And never once while he lived did I regret it. Our only child, which is the child you see here, took after his people rather than mine. And in fact, little Lucy is darker than her father ever was. But, dark or fair, she is my daughter. And I dearly love her. You see how she holds on to me now with such affection. When I left her in America, it was only because her health was weak. She was given to the care of this faithful woman who had once been our servant. Never for a moment did I dream of disowning her as my daughter. Never. But when fate brought us together, Jack, and I learnt to love you, I feared to tell you about my child. God forgive me, but I thought I might lose you because of her and so turned away from my own daughter. Mrs. Monroe. I'm, I'm all right. My husband wants the story told, and, and so I shall. For three years, I have kept her a secret from you, Jack. For my own peace of mind, this nurse who looked after her kept me informed as to her welfare. Finally, however, came an overpowering desire to see her again, a desire I struggled against in vain. Though I knew the danger, I decided to bring her over, if only for a few weeks. I sent a hundred pounds to the nurse and gave her instructions with regard to the cottage so that she might come as a neighbour and seemingly with no connection to myself. Dear Lord, my own child with no connection to myself, the very words stick in my throat. Pushed my precautions so far as to order the nurse to keep dear Lucy in the house by day and to cover up her little face and hands so that even those who might see her at the window would not gossip at there being a black child in the neighbourhood. If I had been less cautious, I might well have been more wise. But I was crazy with fear that you, Jack, would learn the truth and all would be over between us, as now it is. It was you who first told me that the cottage had become occupied. So I knew they had arrived that day. I should, of course, have waited for the morning, but such was my excitement. I, I could not sleep and slipped from my bed knowing how hard it is to wake you. But you saw me go. That was the start and end of all. Next day, you had my secret at your mercy, but nobly refrained from pushing your advantage. Three days later, however, the nurse and child only just escaped by their back door as you came in the front. 
And now you know. You know it all. And I have been forced to do the thing that I most dreaded. Destroy your love for me by my own word of mouth and action. Your love has always been and always will be the thing I hold most dear. And perhaps one day you will understand that pain is the price we pay. I know now our marriage to be over, but I would ask of you in future days not to think too badly of me. Oh, Jack. What is to become of us? Of my child and me? Oh, Jack. Jack, please say something. Mr. Monroe, I... Lucy. Come here. Come to me. That's it. Here. Let me lift you. Well now, Lucy. What a lovely smile from such a lovely girl. Oh, Jack! Oh, my dear. I am not a very good man, I know. And I am aware, perhaps more than you know, of all my faults. But I think I may possibly be a better one than you have given me credit for. I have been a fool. A dreadful fool. Shh. All over now. I am so ashamed. No. No more tears. Come. Let's go home. Let's all go home. Let's leave this place. Yes. And I think it's time, Holmes, for us to leave Norbury. Yes, Watson, you're right. From now on, I think we'll be of more use in London. You're very quiet, old fellow. Hmm? The journey back. All through supper, you've hardly said a word. No. Why is it gloomy? The case had a successful outcome, even if events were not quite as you predicted. Oh, yes, yes. Not worried about that young family, are you? No, 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 Watson, I'm not, no. In fact, really, have I been so gratified to be wrong. Oh. Yeah, the sight of them walking into their home to start a new and proper life together... Uh, Worth all my own errors. Exactly. So don't wallow in your failure to deduce an explanation which only Mrs. Monroe herself could give. After all, if we hadn't gone to Norbury, the true story might never have been known. And there wouldn't have been a happy ending. Uh, right as always, old friend. Nevertheless, I shall take my candle and go to bed. I've learnt a lesson about myself today. And a little solitary contemplation won't do me any harm. What? Watson, if it should ever strike you that I am getting a little overconfident in my powers or giving less pains to a case than it deserves, kindly whisper, Norbury, in my ear, and I shall be 
infinitely obliged to you. You may depend on it. Good night, Holmes. Good night, Watson. In The Yellow Face, Sherlock Holmes was played by Clive Merrison and Dr. Watson by Michael Williams. With Joan Matheson as Mrs. Hudson, Mark Straker as Grant Monroe, Helena Breck as Effie Monroe, and Cyril Jenkins as their maid. The violinist was Leonard Friedman. The Yellow Face was dramatized for radio by Jerry Jones and directed by Enid Williams. Radio presentation. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to like and rate this podcast on your favorite app. Also, there's a Nostalgic Mystery Radio YouTube page for your perusal to subscribe to. You can contact me by emailing me at nostalgicmysteryradio at gmail.com. I hope you have a blessed day or evening. And again, thank you for listening.